I'll be reading this morning from 1 Kings chapter 2, so you can stand as you find that. 1 Kings 2, 1 through 9. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do, wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out His promise which He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." Now you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war in peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt, about his waist, and on his sandals, on his feet. So act according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For they assisted me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And behold, there was with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite of Barum. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day that I went to Mononim. But when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore, do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man. And you will know what you ought to do to him, and, he, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. I'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing us together um, as one and for the work that you've accomplished, God, in our hearts on your behalf. On, for your glory, God. And I just pray that, that, again, our hearts would be stirred by your spirit and your word. You would speak to us, God, and that we would yield in faith to all that you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Appreciate the ministry of the choir again, and appreciate Connor standing in for me last week. Um, I was preaching in, in Florida. And then uh, Patsy and I were able to take a few days of rest at a friend's home that they have there in Florida that they make available to guests. And so we had a very nice time. Um, we've just started looking at the life here of Solomon in the first part of Kings. And this chapter here, chapter 2, is the throne is officially now transitioning from David to Solomon. And so David is, in effect, giving his last words, his last official charge to his son. David is 70. He's close to death. And so this would have been highly significant for both David and Solomon. As you can imagine, dad is about to pass on to be with the Lord, and he's giving his final words to his son. So there's no doubt that David has been very careful about what he wants to leave with his son. And Solomon would be all ears. I mean, this is, a, this is a moment he is never going to forget for the rest of his life. Dad's last words. But surprisingly, the first thing out of David's mouth does not sound very spiritual at all. 
David's time to die drew near, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Everybody dies. Get over it. And then he says, be strong and show yourself a man. Really, Dad? That's it? You've been walking with the Lord your whole life. You were called a man after God's own heart when you were still a teenager. And the best you can do is tell me, be strong and show myself a man. Any pagan could say that to his son. Am I right? There is nothing inherently spiritual about what David just said. Be strong and show yourself a man. Beat your chest, lift some weights, and you'll be the man. But I don't think David um, meant for Solomon to look at this humanistically. And the words that he says next explain, I think, what David has in his mind of what a man of strength looks like. So when I teach this passage in Bible school, I like to preface it and say, women, pay attention. This is what a strong man looks like. Now, if you're looking for a bad boy, then this passage is not for you. But if you want a strong man, then this is what you should be looking for. And I say to the young men, there's a lot of confusion today of what masculinity looks like, of what it means to be a man. And rather than take your cues from the world, take your cues from God's word. And this is great advice on what it looks like to be a man. But whatever age we are in our lives, this is, as men, this will always be important for us to heed. Now, David, talking to his son, is using the language of man to man. It would certainly apply to all people, men and women, what David is saying here. But I just want to keep it in the language that David is using, father to son, man to man. Be strong, show yourself a man. Right off the bat, David is saying to his son, you don't have what it takes. You are neither strong nor a man, in, in and of yourself. And then he says, the first aspect to being the man of strength that God has designed you to be has to do with how you relate to God and his word. That should not be lost on us. In other words, you will never be the man that God intended for you to be apart from God. You will never be strong. You will never be the man apart from a personal relationship with God that is centered on the Word of God. Not centered on emotion, not experience, centered on passion, not centered on, on anything other than God and His Word. That is the key to becoming the man, being the man that God wants you to be. No one can be a true man of strength apart from God. On your own, Independent of faith in God, you will never be the man that you were created to be. So in verse 3, keep the charge of the Lord your God. God has placed a charge on all of us, not just the new king. Every man has a charge that God has placed on his life. Keep the charge that God has given you. Well, what is that charge? 
in generality, I believe there's, there are specifics, there are specific callings that God gives to us, but every man has a charge. And that is that he not live unto himself, but he lives under God, from God, for God, so that God is reflected in all that he does. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, not in your ways. Remember, that we're not very far removed from the time of the judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. That is not what it means to be a man. But keep his charge to walk in his ways, and then over and over again, he's going to repeat the word of God. So he says to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses. I don't know how many ways you can say, look at the Bible and do what it says. It's not about you. It's not your ways, your statutes, your commandments, your ordinances. It's God's. So a man is never going to be the man that God intends for him to be if he is not rooted and grounded in God's word. That's God's design. That doesn't mean you have to be a Bible scholar. doesn't mean you have to go to seminary. But your Bible should not be collecting dust. It ought to have a firm, central place in your life. This is what God has intended. I tell you, the men that I have respected the most in my life have not been men who went to seminary. But they are men who are, who are men of the book. It used to be Christians were called people of the book. Do you know that? That's how we were known. Believers were known all across the, the world in the early days of the church as people of the book. We got the message. It's not the church's job. It's not a Bible college's job. It's your job as a man to become a man of the book. David is telling his son, take responsibility for your own spiritual life. Take initiative to seek God in his word and to be obedient to God's word. We all here, those different, just, just, it's just grievous to our souls when we hear a man or a woman say, I am being obedient to God. And yet the particular that they're talking about is contradictory to the word of God. That is not obedience to God. That is deception, but it is not obedience. If my obedience does not square with God's word, stop calling it obedience. It is not what it is. Stop saying God is leading you. Stop saying God has told you. It is none of those things. Well, boy, it sure sounds like legalism. His statutes, his commandments, his ordinances. David, what are you just saying, son, be a legalist? There's no legalism here. Far from it. David is orienting his son to God and his word, not to performance for the sake of personal merit or righteousness. The New Testament does the same thing, orienting us to the commands of God's word. In 1 John 2, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar 
and the truth is not in him. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And I could keep going on. There's verse after verse like that in the New Testament. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You cannot separate love for God from obedience to his word. And there's lots of people that say, I love God. But their life is not a life of obedience to him based on his word. And God is the one who defines what obedience looks like. Knowing God through his word and obeying him in faith is the key to success. The end of verse 3, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. I want you to be a successful man. I want you to be a strong man. To be strong and successful as a man, you must be grounded in God's word and obedient by faith to what God has said. Or you will never be the strong and successful man that God has created you to be. So a few thoughts about success. What is it? What does it look like today? First of all, it's a bit curious to me that that David would say this to his son. And off, right, we have to take off the table from the very beginning that success does not depend on how you were raised. Now, I thank God for my mom and dad. I think they did a wonderful job raising us. The neighbors would have thought maybe they might disagree with that when we grew up down in Corpus. But, but there are so many people today, in fact, the vast majority of us, when we look back at our parents, and we can all, myself included, think about the mistakes that were made. And we can go through life blaming our parents because of the mistakes that they made. Right? David was not a good dad. At least when it came to Adonijah, we're told in the first chapter, he never once ever disciplined him. And remember, Solomon's going to write in Proverbs and say, the father that doesn't discipline his son hates him. David was not a dad who was there for his kids. Did not train them. Did not discipline them. That is not being a good dad. And he's telling his son, your success in life does not depend on me. If you fail in life, don't blame me. Your success or failure in life has to do with your relationship with God. Parents can hurt us. They can damage us. But they are not God. And they do not control the destiny of a child's life. God does. That doesn't mean we're off the hook and we shouldn't do all that God would have us to do for our children in raising them and training them up to walk with God. There are men in Scripture, and the kings is full of, of them, who had terrible dads, and yet they turned out to be godly men. During the time of the Great Depression, there were many dads that walked away. 
I know at least two. One of them was in this church. And the last thing that man saw of his father was his backside walking out the dirt lane off the farm. And he never even turned around to look back at his family. And that little boy was raised by his wife, by his mom, and by her sisters. Both the men that I know that experienced almost identical things grew up to be strong, successful men. Without a dad in their lives. And the dad they had were terrible examples of what it means to be a man. So there's encouragement here in that David is saying to his son, it's not about me, son. There is no dad who couldn't have done a better job. I'd like to think that I was a pretty good dad, but then I think about different mistakes that I made. I remember the time that I came into the bedroom, boy's bedroom, because Michael was screaming, and, and I rushed in to see what was going on, and the roll-up shade had been pulled completely off. It was just stretched across the room, and the kids knew don't ever even touch the shade. And it's just completely stretched out. A book has all the pages ripped out of it. And Nathan, the older boy, is sitting on the back of Michael. And Michael's just screaming. And so I did my quick fatherly assessment. Shades been ripped down. Pages have been ripped out of the book. And Big Brother's beating up Little Brother. So I grabbed Big Brother, threw him across the bed, whop, 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 gave him three quick whops. And he's crying, and I'm hugging him, doing the big dad, good dad thing now. And he's going, Dad, <laughs> Michael ripped the shade down. <laughs> and Michael was ripping all the pages out of the book, and the only way I could get him to stop was to sit on him. And I'm just thinking, I am the worst dad in the world. And now I'm having to apologize and ask forgiveness from my three-year-old son or four years old, whatever he was. That's a humbling thing to have to apologize to a child. All of us should need therapy. (laughs) Based on the things that our parents have done. We should all need therapy. But because of the grace of God who works all things together for good who is the Redeemer. We can forget the things that lie behind. And we can move forward. We don't have to dig up the past and regurgitate the past. We can go, bad things happen. Good parents sin against their children. Who hasn't experienced that? Stop blaming mom and dad. And get your eyes on Jesus. Live humbly according to his word. And you will have success. Success does not depend on ambition or determination to achieve or to accomplish. Success is not about money and power. It occurs to me that the most important thing that I ever have success over is myself. 
Proverbs says, The man who rules his spirit is better than the one who rules a city. I need to have victory over who I am apart from Christ. That is the ultimate success. And that only comes from Jesus. I need to have victory over Satan, the God of this world. And Jesus is the one who has defeated him. I need to have victory over this world and all that it, ways that it would seek to conform us to its image. And Jesus has overcome the world. I need victory over past decisions that I have made. And Jesus is the Redeemer. And I need victory, as I've said, even over parents and choices and decisions they made. And Jesus is the one who works all things together for good. So I hope you can see there is no success apart from Jesus. Success is a life of peace, fruitfulness, and spiritual significance as a consequence of walking according to the Spirit and abiding in Christ. We lived in a very modest home growing up. We didn't think anything about it because everybody around us lives in very modest homes as well. We never lacked, never missed a meal, always had more than adequate clothing. But our kitchen table was a piece of plywood with four legs nailed to it that my grandfather had made. I don't know anybody that ate on a piece of plywood. But we never thought, I never thought anything about it. It was just, it was big enough. Eight people, six kids, two, it was just big enough. So it was a piece of plywood. My dad was always inviting people over to, for dinner. Drove my mom crazy sometimes, as much as she enjoyed hosting. And at times things were so um, um, tight that I know a couple times I helped clear the table. Yeah, was one of the kids were always involved with the household chores and clearing the table after a meal and a guest had placed money underneath the table, underneath the plate, $20 bill or something because they knew we needed it. And so though we were happy and all of our needs were met, there was also an awareness that we were not rich people. One man that would come pretty regularly to eat with us was wealthy. And he told my dad once while we were there at the table, six kids sitting around the table, we pulled up an extra spot for this guy could make his place. And he said, you're the wealthiest man that I know. And that made an impact on me to hear this guy who was in terms of the world, clearly successful. But he knew real success is not about what you possess. But real success is peace, fruitfulness, and spiritual significance that comes as a consequence of walking according to the Spirit and abiding in Christ. Jesus and the disciples not including Judas, were viewed by God 
as successful men. Strong, successful men. And they had nothing to their names. Nothing. They fulfilled the purpose that God had called them for. By walking with Him. How do you fulfill God's purpose, God's charge upon your life? You walk with Him in love for Him, in dependence upon Him, and obedience to Him. Ian Thomas used to say that when sin entered into the world, the interlock between love, dependence, and obedience was shattered. And since that time, no man has ever been the man that God intended him to be. So Jesus comes in as the last Adam to restore our humanity, and specifically to restore the interlock between love for God, dependence upon God, and obedience to God. And nobody personified that better than Jesus did. Love God, dependent upon God, and obedient to God. And that's the definition of success. The vertical, our relationship with God, will always impact the horizontal, our relationship with others. So having addressed that it's first of all most important that a man obey God, walks with God, and on the basis of that, he will be both strong and successful. He now addresses his relationship with other men. Also vitally important. And the one impacts the other. There's no way to legitimately separate your relationship with God from your relationship with others. And if I am walking with God in truth... How can I not relate to others in truth? I read just a tragic story. It's happening right now in England. A very highly um, competent doctor, medical doctor, has lost his position at a hospital because he refused to call an individual that was over six feet tall with a beard her. And he refused to refer to him as Mrs. And they fired him. He had the medical commission for England said this man is a competent doctor. And he has done nothing that would keep him from, from fulfilling his obligations and serving his patients well. But the highest courts in England upheld his dismissal. And now he's taking it before the European court. It's a pretty big deal. What is his problem? He, he as a Christian, believes that to walk with God in truth means you walk with men in truth. And how can you compel me to speak what is a lie? I must walk in truth before God. And there is not a separation in that truthful walk with God and how I relate to men. And so David says, son, 
There are two kinds of men in this world. And you can forget the category of believer and unbeliever because that's not what I'm talking about, David's saying. But among believing men, there are good men and there are bad men. And you've got to be prepared to acknowledge that and act on it. So he says in verse 5, Now you know what Joab the son of Zariah did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Nair and to Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. He murdered them. He also shed the blood of war in peace. Now he may be referring there to Absalom. Absalom tried to take the throne from David, and Absalom was defeated, and he was hanging from his hair by his hair from a tree. And David had said, Don't kill my son Absalom, and he killed him anyway. And David says, kill him. Now, who is this Joab? Happens to be David's nephew. And he came and, and ran with David as a fugitive from Saul with his two brothers years before David became king. These three nephews joined him, Joab and his two brothers. He so distinguished himself as a warrior that he became the commander of all David's troops. He was greater than David's 30 mighty men. There was no fear in this man, Joab. You did not want to meet this man. If you had to go to war with this man, you were, it, was just, it was over. This guy won every fight he was ever in. He's been with David for over 40 years, his entire 40 years reign, plus a few years before that when he was running from Saul. So this man himself has to be David's age or older. So you can have nephews that are older than you are. David was the youngest in his family, and it's not unlikely that, that Joab himself is over 70 years old. And David is saying, kill the skunk. He's his nephew. He has been the only commander David has ever had. You can argue he's been loyal from, the, from as long as David's been with him. But you'd be mistaken. Five times this man disobeyed the king. Killing of Abner, killing of Amasa, killing of Absalom, but also when David ordered that a census be taken, and Joab knew that's a mistake. God had said to the king was not to number the people, but he obeyed the king and he did it, but he came back with an inaccurate number. He knew he was giving David the wrong number. He disobeyed the king. And the fifth time, when David has made it clear Solomon is to be king and, and Joab has backed Adonijah. Five times this man has rebelled against the king. He looks loyal to the king. It'd be more accurate to say he is loyal to the throne, but he is not loyal to the man who sits on it. Every decision Joab made, he made with Israel's best in mind. But in doing that, he was overruling the will of the king. I've heard so many times where a Christian will say, this is the principle from Scripture, and this is where I stand. And their life is defined by principles rather than the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees, I know you're searching the Scriptures. 
because that's where you're trying to find your life. But you're unwilling to come to me. Unwilling to come. And we can make, we can make the principles of God's scripture the guidelines of our life rather than God who wrote the scriptures. And again, I am not trying to separate the two. But we are not to be a principle-driven people. But we are a people who follow the good shepherd, the person of Jesus Christ. And sometimes my convictions, my principles, are not what God has put on my heart. Not what God is trying to say. He was a principled man. But he did not respect the man sitting on the throne. As an employer, do you really want an employee who is principled, who is competent, who is capable, but disrespects you? Who wants that? As an employer, I can tell you, I am not looking just for people who can do the job. Joab could do his job. But if that competent, principled person can't respect me, find another job. It's not going to work. And if you're in a position as a Christian where you can't respect your employer, you're not doing your employer any service. Either learn to respect him or find another boss. Daniel served under pagan, ungodly men. Three of them. And he respected all three of them. Why didn't David kill him? David had every opportunity to kill Joab. Lots of commentaries, man, you read them on this passage and they go, David is just letting Solomon do his unfinished business. This is nothing but a, stake, a, a, a case of just vengeance. I don't think so at all. There is not a single time in David's life that he ever took his own personal vengeance. That is one good thing about David. Never did he take his own revenge. A couple times he was tempted, but he never did it. Never did. This is not about vengeance. This is not about unfulfilled business. This is a king saying to a new king, your throne will always be in jeopardy as long as that man is alive. I can deal with him because I've been around as long as he has. I've got more weight. I've got more power than he does. But the new king, just because you're king doesn't mean you have the greatest influence and the greater power. These old mossbacks will have more power and more influence than you. When a young pastor comes into a church so many, they, they make the mistake of coming into a church, young pastor, maybe the first church they've ever pastored, and they start making changes. Because they have the authority. They can do it. And they don't last very long. Oftentimes, in the, within a couple years, they're gone. Because they haven't learned, just because you have the position doesn't mean you have the power. And Solomon has the position but that doesn't mean he has the power. And you've got this man out there that's older than you are, and he's been around forever, and he has disobeyed the king five times and lived through it. If there's any malcontents in Israel, you know who they're, they're going to gather around. 
that's going to be around Joab. And so for the sake of the throne, this has nothing to do with David. For the sake of the throne of Israel, David is saying, this man is a living threat. He deserves to die for his treachery. You've got to kill him. But this show kindness, verse 7, to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for they assisted me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Absalom had taken the throne. He'd conquered. He'd taken um, um, Jerusalem. David had fled with his family and, and, the, and the mighty men that were with him. And they had, it was, it was a, a camp of several hundred, a company of several hundred, maybe a few thousand people. But they were grossly outnumbered by Absalom and all the rest of Israel. And David has just fled with all the young ones down to the river. They've gotten to the Jordan. Now it's nighttime. And they have got to get across the river. If they don't cross the river, then they're pinned. And Absalom's going to come in the next day and slaughter them all. And there's this guy across the river that we've never heard of before, Barzillai. And he's an old man. And he's got grown sons. And he doesn't know all the facts about what's happened in Israel. He doesn't know if David has maybe messed up somehow. He, he, he only knows that David is his friend. And that David is God's anointed king. And David needs help. Now, we saw that when Adonijah tried to take the throne, if he'd been successful, his first action as king was going to be to wipe out anybody that didn't stand with him. Absalom would have been no different. If Absalom had been successful in taking the throne, he would have killed David and everybody who stood with David. Barzillai knew that. Barzillai knew to help David, who for all practical purposes was already defeated, would be to forfeit his life and the lives of his sons. But he said to his sons, get your canoes, get your boats, get your rafts. We're going to spend all night long getting this man and his family across this river. And those boys did it. David never forgot it. That is loyalty. The kind of man who will stand with you when it, you risk everything to stand with him because he's about to lose it all. And you stand up and say, that's my friend. Wow. And then there is Shimei. Verse 8. There is with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, of Barum, it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day that I went to Mananam. Same thing, same stories, run out of Jerusalem. Here comes this Benjamite, throws dirt, rocks at David. And the worst of it is he accuses David of slaughtering the house of Saul. Bold face lie. There is no truth in that. David had gone out looking for sons of Saul so that he could take care of them. One of them was eating at David's table at this time. And that man deserved to die for what he did to the king, and he knew it. When David came back across the Jordan, he was one of the first guys there, just, oh, forgive me, king. And all the soldiers were going, you didn't let us kill him before. Can we kill him now? And David said, leave him alone. 
David had so much power, so much influence, so much respect, he could put up with this guy. Not Solomon. Too young, too inexperienced. And so if there's any malcontents, I'll say it again, if there's anybody who is against the throne of Solomon, they will rally around people who have already opposed the king and lived to talk about it. And for that reason, Shimei and Joab are great threats to the throne. There is no personal vengeance involved here. This is about securing the throne of Israel. Both of these men were old and dangerous. Rebellious, disrespectful men are dangerous men. Joab respected authority, just not the man in authority. And Shimei had no respect for authority whatsoever. Both men had defied the king and lived to talk about it. And they would become magnets for any of the malcontents that were in the kingdom. Therefore, they, their threats against Solomon were very real. David's advice was that they be killed not for personal vengeance, but because these men would, would undermine the throne. But understand this. Both men were worshipers of God. Joab was capable and competent, but he could not be trusted. Just because a person calls himself a Christian doesn't mean he's a trustworthy man. Many Christians are loyal to their principles and to their convictions, but not to the person of Jesus Christ. So many times a young woman will, you know, they say love is blind. Sometimes that's a willful blindness. Because a young woman has all kinds of warning signs. Bad guy, bad guy. But he's a Christian. He calls himself a Christian. He goes to church. When I teach on the Song of Solomon, one of the points that I make is how significant family and friends are to this whole process of coming together in marriage. And how wisdom would say, whether it's a young man or a young woman, you go to your friends, you go to your family and say, is there anything of concern that you see here? Because just because they're a Christian doesn't make them good. And David is saying to his son, you will never be the strong, successful man that God wants you to be. And you act like all Christians are the same. You act like all men are the same. If you walk in truth before God, you're going to have to walk in truth before others. And the truth is, some people who call themselves Christians are scoundrels. He is saying, judge them. The application here for us is not to go out and kill bad people. That is not the application for us. But the application is, it is our duty as those who walk in the truth with God who is truth to not put our heads in the sand when it comes to other men. It is our duty. That vertical relationship with God should impact everything on the horizontal. 
David is not orienting his son towards being judgmental. He is orienting him toward truth. There is nothing in the Bible that says that you are not to judge the behavior of another person. We are exhorted to judge the behavior, the morality of ourselves as well as others. Paul scolded the Corinthians because he says, you've got a man in your midst who is living an immoral lifestyle and you have not judged him. I have already judged him. Jesus said he came to bring a sword. The sword of judgment between right and wrong, between truth and error. Can't judge the hearts of another, I get it. But we can judge their actions. Finally, a strong and successful man. He knows and obeys God on the basis of his word. He takes responsibility for his own spiritual life. He chooses to submit himself and align himself with the word of God. He does not blame others for his lack of success. He chooses to relate to others in the light of the truth of God's word. Not on the basis of sentimentality or expediency or personal loyalties or personal experience, but on the truth of God's word. And he defines success according to God's definition. A life lived in love for him, dependence upon him, and obedience to him. I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for these practical words that you had David give to his son. And they are for us as well. We know that you would have us to live as your children, as men and women of God, walking in the truth with you and walking in the truth, God, with those that you place in our lives. And I pray that we would Never, God, separate grace and truth. But Jesus, who is the fullness of grace and truth, would be fully revealed in each of our lives, God, as we trust you to make both known in us. That we would be people who are characterized by both grace and truth. That's a balance, God, that we can't achieve. But this is what you are. And so we look to you, God, to fulfill this in us. For your name's sake, in Christ's name, amen.